Today's text is Revelation 5. If you would like to follow along, you can find that on page 1918 of your Pew Bibles. John's visit to the heavenly throne room continues in this chapter. Listen to these words from Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons, persons from, from every, every tribe and language and people and, people and nation. nation. You have made them to be a, a kingdom, kingdom and, and priests, priests to serve our God, and, and they, they will, will reign, reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power, power and, and wealth and, and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.
Brothers and sisters uh, in Jesus Christ, the climactic scene of the classic movie The Wizard of Oz has a timeless reveal. Uh, After numerous encounters, mishaps, and close calls along the way, uh, the main character, Dorothy Gale, and her friends, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion, arrive in the presence of the great and powerful Wizard of Oz, each of them hoping that he can help them with something that they need. The Scarecrow wants a brain, the Tin Man a heart, the Cowardly Lion courage, and Dorothy wants to return home to Kansas. But the wizard stalls. I'll have to give the matter a little thought, he says. Go away and come back tomorrow. It's at that moment, though, that Dorothy's little dog, Toto, runs behind a nearby curtain, pulling it open to reveal a man working levers and dials and speaking into a microphone. Flustered, the man quickly pulls the curtain back around him, while the wizard booms, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. But it's too late. The jig is up. Dorothy and her friends confront the man and learn that he, in fact, is the wizard. Not some powerful being, but instead just a man behind a curtain. Not at all what Dorothy and her friends expected. St. John also sees something that he doesn't expect here in our text this morning. The curtain gets pulled back, if you will, and like Dorothy and her friends, John witnesses a transformation, a a metamorphosis, someone that he expected to look one way, instead looking very different, looking something like how he doesn't expect. Before we get into all that, though, let's just back up for a moment and set the scene. As we saw last week when we looked at Revelation chapter 4, St. John is in the heavenly throne room. Uh, There are elders and living creatures there, and before the throne there's a sea of glass as clear as crystal. And on the throne itself sits one who has the appearance of jasper, ruby, and a rainbow of emerald. The living creatures give this one on the throne worship, and the elders fall down before him, laying down their crowns and proclaiming him worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. He is the Lord God Almighty the one who is and who was and who is to come. Chapter 5 then picks things right back up where chapter 4 left them. His ears still ringing with the worship of the creatures and the elders, St. John looks to the one enthroned and he sees a scroll in his right hand. There are seven seals on it and sealed within it is God's redemptive plan for his creation. Not, it must be emphasized, some sort of vision of the future, at least not the way that we tend to think of it. Um, contrary to popular belief and countless pop culture, pop culture interpretations, this scroll isn't meant to be seen as some sort of crystal ball containing uh, you know, God's secretive timeline for the end of days. God's not toying with us here in this text by twirling his, his plan for how the world's going to end between his fingers. To do so would be out of character for God, not to mention explicitly opposed to what he says elsewhere in Scripture. After all, remember when Jesus himself said, about that day or hour, no one knows? It's not like we can figure out how everything is going to end by somehow piecing together the mysteries of this book, though many have tried. The truth is that Scripture is very rarely interested in answering the questions that we wish it would. Questions like, when is the world going to end and what will it be like? 
Scripture isn't all that interested in answering those types of questions because it's the Word of God. And so as His Word, it sets out to accomplish God's purposes, not ours. And so as a result, this scroll isn't a who, what, when, where, or how of the end of the world. God's not teasing us here with a bit of secret knowledge, but keeping it just outside our reach. Instead, what this scroll contains is something that we as Christians, if we know the rest of Scripture, already know a little something about. That's because rolled up within it is God's redemptive plan for His world. The recreation that He's slowly been unveiling throughout all of history. His renewal project for His world that He began all the way back in Genesis 3. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That's what this scroll contains. It's the blueprint, if you will, of God's millennia-long mission. He intends to rehabilitate his world and recapture his original goal of flourishing and abundance. God created a good world. He still desires that good world. And that's what this scroll contains. Not a vision of the future exactly as it will unfold with sort of a bullet list of step-by-step points. but Instead, a vision of God's kingdom fully come here on earth as it is in heaven. His world fully restored. His creation made good again. So the question here in this text isn't what's in the scroll. Many have asked that question over time, but we actually already know a bit about that. And on top of that, that's not the question that the text itself actually asks anyway. And so the question here is, who is worthy to open the scroll. Who's worthy to unseal it? Who's worthy to unlock it and set the plan contained within into motion? In other words, who is worthy to carry out God's mission and bring His kingdom fully here on earth? Well, John doesn't know. And so he weeps. He weeps and weeps because no one is found to open the scroll, or even look inside it. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. In other words, in all existence, no one is worthy to open the scroll and move God's plan forward. It seems like the project has stalled, like the mission has been aborted, and so John despairs. But then one of the heavenly elders comes to John, tells him to stop weeping and look because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And suddenly there's hope. There is one who is worthy. There is one who can drive God's plan of redemption forward. There is one who can get it back in gear, back on track, and get God's creation back to the way it's supposed to be. Through tear-blurred eyes, John turns to see this lion, this root of David, the one who is worthy and will accomplish God's purposes. And that, my friends, is when he sees the unexpected. This is where the transformation takes place. This is where the metamorphosis in this text occurs. This is where the curtain is pulled back. To be more accurate, it's actually been torn in two, from top to bottom. Because there, standing in front of John, standing in the midst of the heavenly throne room, standing at the center of the throne itself, is one that John did not expect. 
Not the anticipated and announced lion, powerful and proud. Instead, a lowly lamb. And this, this changes everything. It changes everything not only for John, it changes everything for us as well. In fact, it changes everything for everyone throughout history who has put their faith and trust in this Lamb, in this one who is worthy, in the one that we know as Jesus Christ. The first thing it it changes is our understanding of what kind of Savior he is. You see, the order here is important. This transformation, this reveal, it moves in a certain direction. It's the lion that becomes the lamb, not the other way around. Don't get me wrong, our Savior is certainly one of power. He's certainly a Savior of strength. The rest of Scripture makes that clear, as do the songs of this text. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So sing the living creatures, the elders, and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. There's no question here that our Savior is strong. But as so often happens in the gospel, his strength is of a different kind. This is how it always is, actually, with Jesus throughout Scripture. To begin, he invaded Satan's sin-stained world, not like some uh, secret black ops super spy, but instead as an infant, helpless and small, laid in a manger. Years later, he spread the message of God's coming liberation, not with trumpets and heralds or by pounding it all out on some controversial and widely read blog the way that we might today, but instead by going fishing with nobodies, having conversations with his friends, sitting down to meals with sinners. He then made that liberation possible not by showing up with a well-trained army to do battle against Satan and win it all on the field, but rather by willingly surrendering himself and dying a criminal's death. And finally, he was proved victor, lord, and king of all creation, not in some elaborate and well-choreographed inauguration, but on a brisk Sunday morning as he quietly slipped out of the tomb before his followers could show up to embalm him. Jesus isn't the Savior we expect. We expect the Savior who looks like us, talks like us, acts like us, and yes, saves like us. We expect a lamb who becomes a lion, not a lion who becomes a lamb. But our Savior's strength is of another kind. And this text makes that clear. And that brings us to the second thing that we need to understand from this lion-lamb reveal, which is that it changes not only our understanding of the kind of Savior that we have, but it also changes our understanding of how exactly he saves. You see, when the curtain gets pulled back here, it's not just any old lamb who's standing there, but a slain lamb. And again, this is different from what we expect. Truth be told, this is actually what's made every strong man in history despise Christianity, from Pilate to Nero, from Marx to Nietzsche, from Hitler to Stalin, all the way to our would-be strongmen today. Christianity is weak, they say. It's passive. It's the opiate of the people. It can't save anyone. All it can do is enslave and delude them. And yet we can't seem to shake the saving power of this story, can we? 
How is it that 2,000 years later, the story of an itinerant Jewish rabbi dying a Roman executed death is known the world over, and not only known the world over, but actually believed by billions around the world today and throughout history to be the central event of all human life? When you think about it, that story should have died out long ago, just like the Savior it reveals. And yet it hasn't, has it? And neither have its effects. You see, for all the scorn that the world heaps on this story, the truth is that the world also loves this story. After all, what stories do we most enjoy telling? What are the stories that captivate us? What are the stories that inspire us? Are they not like this one? We and the rest of the world are confused by this slain lamb here in Revelation 5, and yet we make all of our heroes like him. We love stories of sacrifice and selflessness, of love and grace, of gentleness and compassion. Those are the movies we make. They're the TV shows that win awards, and they're the real-life heroes that we lift up. You see, at a basic level, I think we know, deep in our bones, that that's what true power looks like. People try to dress power up as a manipulative, condescending, forceful act of belligerence, but that's not power. That's a poor imitation of it. True power isn't shooting from the hip, saying whatever you want whenever you want to say it. It's not you know, doing whatever you please regardless of the circumstances. It's not taking what's yours by force and leaving others with nothing. No, true power is the power we see here. God's power. The power of the slain lamb, the power of our Isaiah 53 Savior, who grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That's how our Savior saves. Not like the world expects, not like we expect, not with worldly power, but with a power and strength all his own. And that, my friends, is what makes him worthy. It's what makes him worthy to take the scroll. It's what makes him worthy to open it and move God's redemptive plan forward. It's what makes him worthy of worship too. 
As the living creatures and elders sing in verses 9 and 10, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. It's precisely because who because of who Christ is as a Savior and how He saves that He is worthy. Remember, no one else in all creation, no one else in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one else in all existence was worthy because no one else is like this Savior. And that's why we worship Him too. You see, at a basic level, Worship is an acknowledgement that we cannot satisfy our own needs. We are dependent beings, and as dependent beings, we inevitably worship the things that we depend on. Eugene Peterson writes about this in his book on Revelation, Reverse Thunder. He says this, People who do not worship live in a vast shopping mall where they go from shop to shop, expending enormous sums of energy and making endless trips to meet first this need and then that appetite, this whim and that fancy. Life lurches from one potential satisfaction to another, interrupted by ditches of disappointment. Motion is fueled by the successive illusions that purchasing this wardrobe, driving that car, eating this meal, drinking that beverage will center life and give it coherence. In other words, what Peterson is saying is that we all, as human beings, we all depend on something. Forget God and we'll find something else to depend on in His place. It'll be our success, our savings, our grades, our possessions. Something will save us, though. Something has to save us. Ignore the worship of God and we'll soon find ourselves worshiping something else. This actually reminds me of of someone I met a few years ago. His name was Benjamin, and we met in the Spirit Airlines check-in line at O'Hare International Airport. We were both headed to Peru, and he he asked me why I was going there, and I said to visit Machu Picchu. For those of you who don't know, Machu Picchu is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. He said, really? Me too. Are you also going to sit with the shamans in the Sacred Valley? No, I said. Um, My sister lives in Peru right now, and we're just going as tourists. I didn't even know that there were shamans or a sacred valley. That didn't deter Benjamin, though. He proceeded to spend the next 45 minutes we were in line together telling me all about the sacred valley that surrounds Machu Picchu, the shamans who live there in the jungle, and the hallucinogenic tea they use to help pilgrims like Benjamin achieve enlightenment. You should try it, he said. I told him I'd think about it. Since we were both traveling by ourselves, Benjamin and I decided to become travel buddies. During our layover in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, we watched each other's luggage whenever one of us needed to go to the bathroom. We talked about the different things that we were each reading, and we shared our meals together. It was during one of those meals that Benjamin said to me, look at this, I want to show you something. He'd been intently studying a map for the last few minutes, and he pulled it between us so that I could see what was on it. On the map was an island This is where I was conceived, Benjamin told me. Apart from wondering how he knew that bit of information, I wondered where this was going. I didn't have to wonder long. My shaman in the Sacred Valley emailed me last week, he said. And as I wondered how good the Wi-Fi in the Sacred Valley was, he continued, 
He told me to research where I was conceived in preparation for my time studying with him. He told me that it would reveal who my earth mother or earth father is. Doesn't this island look like a seahorse, he said to me. I think my earth father is a seahorse. I'm not making this up, by the way. This is an actual conversation that I actually had with an actual person who was actually named Benjamin in the Fort Lauderdale airport on our way to Peru together in 2014. Well, let's be honest, that's a pretty funny story. Um, there's more to it as well. I don't have time to tell you all about the medallion with the power of the angels, the protective spirit necklace Benjamin wore, or what happened when I decided to give him my copy of the Sayings of the Desert Fathers, which is a collection of the teachings of the early Christian monks and monastics. I figured he needed it more than I did. And it's easy to laugh at Benjamin, isn't it? It's easy to smirk at his beliefs. It's easy to smile and roll our eyes and think, man, that guy must have already been drinking that tea. It's easy to think that way until we realize that we're all actually just like him. You see, that's how we all seem when we put our hope and trust in something other than God. Why is it more ridiculous to trust the shamans of the sacred valley in Peru than a paycheck? Why is it more laughable to get our identity from the place of our conception than from our relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Why is hallucinogenic tea a stranger path to enlightenment than self-help books? You see, Benjamin's worship habits were weird. The things he was depending on were odd. The places he was looking for meaning, significance, and identity were strange. But if you think about it, they're no stranger than any of the other things we too often default into worshiping in place of Jesus Christ. Here's the good news, though. Christ has freed us from those things. We said God's plan sealed up in the scroll here in this text was the redemption of his world, right? He wants to restore all things. He wants to recalibrate and renew them. Well, the first thing that he actually recalibrated was right here. Us. Our hearts. That's where God has started his entire plan of redemption. Through his son, Jesus Christ, he has reclaimed us, rescued us, and forgiven us. He's made us his people again, members of his own family, and witnesses to his grand mission of renewing this entire world. And doing this, what we're doing here right now, worshiping him, it keeps that work of renewal ongoing in us. It reminds us of the one on whom we truly depend. It helps us remember that there is only one who can ultimately satisfy us. And it makes clear that his is the only gospel worth believing. That's why we do this each week. That's why we worship. We worship to declare Christ worthy to center our lives around Him and Him alone, and to recognize Him along with all creation and the heavenly host as the one on whom we truly rely and depend. It's this Lamb, not some faraway shamans or the political outcome a few days from now or anything else that we as human beings manufacture and worship in His place. It's only this Lamb 
who can save us, who can rescue and redeem us, and who has already done those things on our behalf. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you alone are worthy. And to you be all praise and honor and glory and power and strength and wisdom and wealth and all the rest. Help us to remember that each and every day of our lives that we are centered on you because you are the only source of our salvation. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.